Father God, please open our eyes this morning. Show us what we need to see from this passage. By your spirit, equip me, give me the right words. Build your people. Amen. As Dave says, it was a bit naff. Haggai is a book that speaks to disappointment and uncertainty. You know, when you look at your life and ask, is this it? Is this as good as it gets? I hope it's not just me. We, we probably all find ourselves there at some time. Perhaps you find yourself feeling that the challenges ahead of you in work or family or health or gospel work are just too great. And you ask, how can I do this? How can I shoulder these responsibilities? Am I doomed to bump along or to failure? Is that it? Perhaps you're keenly feeling disappointment. You look at career or giftings or consequences of sin or your grief or your house or your family or your church and think, is this it? Is this all I'm going to get? Will it never improve? Am I stuck with this? Perhaps you're a visitor. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You're looking in and feeling a bit bemused. This disorganized rabble of, let's be honest, slightly odd people, is this all that Christianity's got to offer? Is this it? And the book of Haggai speaks to disappointment. It, it comes late in the timeline of the Old Testament. By this stage in the Old Testament, God's kingdom has fallen. The Israelites were a nation that the Lord had called for himself and established in the land to live under his blessing. It was so exciting. But as he had predicted, they'd repeatedly turned away from their God's ways. And as he had warned them, as they turned away from his ways, he allowed the neighboring kingdoms to invade and carry them away into exile and slavery. It had felt like all their hope had come to nothing. By the time of Haggai, a remnant of the people had been brought back to the land. And they're beginning to try to rebuild and to reestablish their nation and their people under God's rule. But, yeah, it's naff. It's nowhere near the glories of the olden days. So as we read this book, we see how the Lord speaks to them in their confusion and disappointment and weakness. And the idea I want for us to see this morning from Haggai chapter 2 is that God sees much greater glory in what he's doing than they do in what they're doing. So last week in chapter 1, Matt showed us how the people were living with disappointment then. They had meager harvests and droughts. They had lack of security. But also, when they did eat, they couldn't satisfy their appetites. Something was out of kilter. And in chapter 1, God's challenge to them was that they'd not yet built his house. 
They've been looking after themselves, but not his things. Their priorities were in the wrong place. And he challenged them in chapter 1, verse 8, to give careful thought to their ways. And in mercy and kindness, he called them back to him. And that reminded us how the best thing for them, their highest good, was to prioritize living in worshipful relationship with the God who loved them. And we saw in verses 12 to 15, it's lovely, that the way that they respond in faith. This week, the disappointment's a slightly different flavor because they have responded in faith. Chapter 1 ends on the 24th day of the sixth month. Chapter 2 picks up on the 21st day of the seventh month. It's four weeks later. And that's not very long. It's not long for a big building project, as we know. And in fact, during those weeks, there have been several feast days where no work would have been done. There's been the Day of Atonement. There's been the Festival of Tabernacles, where the whole people would have spent several nights living in tents, remembering the Exodus. But they will have started to gather their resources to divide up the labor, maybe to mark out the ground for the building site. And the feasts will have served to remind them of the promise, their identity as God's people, the security in his covenant they're meant to have. What a great vision-setting start to a big project. But look at the question that's on their hearts, that the Lord tells Haggai to verbalize for them in verse 3. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? Is this it? Does God keep his promises or are they stuck here with failure? This isn't disappointment born out of wrong priorities or disobedience like in chapter 1. This is the people, after a a first flurry of faithful excitement, coming back down to earth with a bump and seeing the scale of the challenge and asking, can we really do this? About 20 years earlier than this, we we can read about it in Ezra chapter 3, when they'd first begun trying to rebuild the temple. There'd been lots of celebration, but... Many of the oldest priests and family heads who had remembered Solomon's temple had wept at the comparison. Two decades on, maybe there's not so many of those people left, but there'll be enough that there'll be an awareness amongst the people that their project just doesn't match up to the days of old. It's naff. What's the problem? It doesn't seem to be the size of the temple. We can read elsewhere, this second temple compares very favorably. It's actually bigger in some ways. But perhaps it's about the richness of the building. Solomon's temple had gold everywhere, even on the floor. They're not going to match that. Maybe some of it is the rose-tinted spectacles looking back at olden days. Maybe a lot of it is national pride. 
Solomon's temple had been at the heart of a superpower. Now they are just one people group of several in a province that pays taxes to a foreign king. Maybe they're seeing their limitations. We can read in the book of Ezra that the work has already been stopped repeatedly by local opposition. And they will face more. And so they're asking themselves, can we do this? Can the glory days of Israel come back? Can God keep his promises and his covenant? Maybe some of that already resonates with you, with your life. But rather than try to apply it straight away, let's instead look at what the Lord has to say to them in verses 4 and 5. Verse 4. But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Three times, he says, be strong, echoing a command made long ago to Joshua as they came into the land the first time. He says, be strong to Zerubbabel, the political authority, and to Joshua, the religious authority, and then to all the people. Be strong and work. And it's a command to the whole people, not just individuals. The work he's calling them to is a collective responsibility. They'll need to be strong. It's going to take four more years to build and then dedicate this temple. And they'll continue to face systematic opposition and hardship throughout. And even just from chapter one, actually, we we know that their food reserves are low. They've been through poor harvests. It could be a tough road. Be strong, God says. And he calls them not just to faith, but to action. They're to work in faith on this task the Lord has called them to. How can they do that? Well, verse 4, be strong and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. That name, the, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, is by their side. But it's better even than that. He's not just saying, be brave because you've got a strong best friend. Look at verse 5. It's fabulous. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. They've been remembering the exodus in their festivals over the last few weeks. And seven or eight hundred years before, After the Lord had rescued the Israelites from slavery and brought them through the Red Sea, he led them to Mount Sinai and he said this to them, Exodus 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession." 
Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And now through Haggai, the Lord is saying that covenant stands. In fact, through Haggai, I think he's saying this, this rebuilding of the temple, this return from exile, this is the plan. You are now becoming for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. My spirit has not left you. Things have not gone off the rails. Do not fear. I think they are looking at the task in front of them and thinking about their capacity and their resources and looking at their feeble nation, which they're not even in charge of, and the enemies lined up against them. And they're asking rightly, can we do this? But the Lord sees far greater glory in their puny efforts than they do. He sees far greater glory in what he's doing than they do in what they're doing. The Lord's covenant still stands. His spirit is still with them. And it's not by accident that the nation of Israel has been weakened and then exiled and then brought back because it was never the Lord's plan for Israel to find security in political or military strength. Now, he's taken them through this history to show it will take more than armies to build his kingdom. And it was never his plan for their safety to be found in a temple building, not, not even one as lovely as Solomon's. No, it will take more than law and sacrifice in a temple for them to be able to live safely with God. One commentary I read suggested that as the Lord lets them build a disappointing temple in a disappointing nation, he's weaning them off the symbols that they put their national pride in as he sets the stage for more glorious work. They feel disappointed and anxious, but the Lord says, this is my covenant. I'm with you. Do not fear. Be strong and work. The Lord sees greater glory in what he's doing than they see in what they're doing. And and so then in verses 6 to 9, graciously and generously, God pulls back the curtain and he gives them a glimpse of what is yet to come. Look at verse 6. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desired of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace declares the Lord Almighty. Again and again, who is he? He's the Lord Almighty. He will not be thwarted. And again, as with verse 5, verses 6 and 7 are pointing back to the Exodus. When they came to Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, the mountain shook and trembled with the presence of God. The, The people were rightly terrified. 
As they left Egypt in Exodus 12, verse 35, the Lord had shaken that nation with plagues, and the residents of Egypt gave the Israelites their silver and their gold as they went. The riches of Egypt were plundered. And that's what was later used to decorate the Ark of the Covenant and the the Lord's Tabernacle. In fact, even now in Haggai, the funds for rebuilding this temple have been allocated from the treasury of the Persian kings. Even now, the Lord is shaking down mighty Persia, claiming its riches for his own. Think of a a money box and, and shaking it and out tumble the coins. The desired of the nations, all its treasures, the silver and the gold are mine, declares the Lord. You really don't need to worry about whether your temple will be glorious enough. But more than that, he's taking their eyes off their current project. And he's showing them that the work they're doing is just setting the scene for something greater. Once more, I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. A time is coming where the Lord will not shake just one nation, but the whole world, the heavens and the earth, the seas and the dry land. And from it, he's going to gather the treasures, all that he values, and fill his house with glory. To what end? Verse 9. In this place, I will grant peace. That word peace is shalom. It's the deep, complete, covenanted rest of right relationship with God. It's what Israel has been straining towards since Eden. It's the fulfillment of all their hopes and desires and prophecy and yearning. In verse 3, they were worried that their temple wasn't good enough. In verses 6 to 9, God says they can barely begin to imagine how good it will be. And then if we step beyond the text and allow ourselves to look a bit ahead, in Luke chapter 2, James looked at that with us two weeks ago, didn't he? 520 years later, roughly, a baby is brought to this temple and Simeon holds him in his arms and says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. Luke chapter 7, verse 50, that baby, now grown up, Jesus, says to a penitent sinner, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Luke chapter 24, after the crucifixion, the risen Lord appears to his disciples and says, Peace be with you. Because on his cross, all the penalty of sin has been paid. All that kept them from God, all that would send them into exile, is dealt with. And so in Christ, they are free to enter into peace with God. As they build this, apparently underwhelming temple. Haggai says that the Lord sees far greater glory in what he's doing 
than they see in what they're doing. He is with them. They need not fear. His covenant stands. And so rather than given to doubt or disappointment, they can be strong and work with confidence. So what about us? We need to be cautious with books like this. Um, we shouldn't take it too directly and just transpose it onto ourselves. Haggai is written to a specific group of people in a specific context at a particular time in salvation history. We don't get to map our building projects or our ministries directly onto this one. That can be misleading. But this passage is quoted in Hebrews 12. It's a good idea to let Scripture interpret Scripture. It might be worth looking at that in home groups this week. The author in Hebrews makes the point that the promise from Haggai, once more I will shake the heavens and the earth, still stands. It's not yet fulfilled. It points us forwards to when Jesus will return, to when he establishes his kingdom for all to see. The book of Revelation is full of pictures of that. We see the people of God gathered from every tribe and tongue and nation, worshipping him, the desired of the nations, cast their crowns and their treasures and their praise before him. At the end of Revelation, instead of a temple, we see a whole city of gold and jewels, beside which even Solomon's temple would be a candle next to the sun. In Hebrews 12, the author makes this point, that the promise is both more wonderful and more important than the promises in the Old Testament. It's not safe to ignore it. He writes in, uh, in Hebrews 12, uh, where can I find it? Verse 18, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm. That is, that is Sinai. But you have come, verse 22, to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the, uh, yeah, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. How wonderful and huge is the thing that you have come to. Verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised... Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Just like in Haggai, the instruction is to be strong and work, to worship acceptably. 
In Hebrews, he goes on to say, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. Continue to remember those in prison and those who are ill-treated. The response to the Lord's promise is to actively live lives of love for each other. Last week, Matt pointed out for us that in the New Testament, the temple isn't a building project anymore. It's the people of God. So our call and our challenge is to collectively build up the people of God. That's the Great Commission, isn't it? Go and make disciples of all nations. Probably, hopefully, you feel inadequate to the task. So it's good to know that the promise of Haggai stands. So as we look, often in in frustrated disappointment at the state of our relationships or work or service, as they did at their temple, it's good to be reminded that God's Spirit has not deserted his people. His plan, his covenant will not fail you, even when we do. And ultimately, the silver and the gold, the treasures of the nations are his. I think that cuts two ways. Perhaps in part, I've been wondering about this, in verse 3, perhaps in part, God is asking the question to humble the people. Their temple will amount to very little. They need to know that. Their building will be less than spectacular, and eventually it will be torn down completely. Sometimes we need to hear and be reminded that our skills and plans and ambitions won't take us far. Sometimes in his generosity, the Lord painfully strips away all that we would rely on instead of him. Maybe you've been through a season of life like that. In which case, hear the comfort of verses 4 and 5. If you're a disciple of Jesus, then the Lord is with you now. His spirit remains amongst us. In fact, even more than in Haggai, because for us, Jesus sends his spirit not just into the people, but into his disciples individually. In John 14, for example, he says the council will come and teach and encourage and give his peace. Be encouraged. Or maybe the struggle for you is that it feels like too great a challenge. Like you achieve too little or don't see any fruits from your labor and things just don't seem to get better. Is it even worth the struggle? What can I do? What can I achieve? The command in Haggai three times. Be strong. Be strong and work because it's the Lord's purposes, not ours. And he takes more pleasure and sees more glory in your humblest service than in what we would have considered to be great deeds. I love that that beautiful verse in 1 Thessalonians, make it your ambition to live a quiet life. It lets me off the hook. How many faithful saints have lived out lives of humble service and been forgotten within a generation? But the Lord sees the impact of their actions. And the Lord will honour them with crowns of glory. 
Friends, your, your weakest, faltering, and insignificant service is a delight to our God. And he is with you, equipping us for each step of the way. So friends, be strong and work. Let us together commit to building up this new temple, the body of Christ. I think that means love and commit to and belong to your local church, here or elsewhere. Look for those who are weak and struggling and bind them up. Encourage them, lift them in prayer. It means we work together to make disciples of those the Lord puts near us. It means we give financially, of course, but, but also we give of our time and our emotional investment in a city where people come and go. It's painful, but worth investing energy and effort in the new faces and welcoming them in and building them up so that we can send them on. And in it all, we can be strong and confident and work in faith for the Lord Almighty is with us. And he sees much greater glory in the work he's doing than we might recognize. Let's pray. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while... I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and the desired of all nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Holy and sovereign Lord. Thank you for the glimpses you give us of the wonder of your plans. Thank you for the steadfast consistency of your promises throughout the Old Testament to the New down to today. Thank you for the confidence in you that you have won for us through the cross of Christ and his resurrection and glorification. Thank you that in our weak and apparently insignificant lives, you are at work for your purposes. Build confidence in us, Lord, please. And teach us how to be strong, to work in faith and without fear, to love the people that you have given us, that your name would be glorified.